Hello, welcome to Late to It. I'm Naomi Frisbee. I'm Kirsty Dill. And this is a podcast about reading books at the right time. Before we talk about what we're reading this week, we are, or have, have read this week, I should say, um, we are recording this the day after the death of Lauren Ballant. Now, Kirsty and I texted yesterday because, shamefully on my part, um, neither of us had heard of Lauren Ballant until they appeared um, in our timelines quite a lot yesterday on social media. And the first thing that I do when somebody appears and it's people that I admire and respect that are talking about them, I go and like, look, so I fell down a bit of a Lauren Ballant wormhole yesterday, which was great. And now I've ordered lots of their books and it's cost me a fortune. Um, <laughs> but it also meant that I read the profile in the New Yorker. Now I am just going to point out that the profile in the New Yorker misgenders Ballant, who, who was a there. Um, although not in this bit I'm about to read because there was something interesting in here so it was talking about so Ballant did a lot of work around affect theory and one of the things that came up in the profile was this during the 2000s affect theory became one of the dominant paradigms of literary studies and a bridge to other fields notably social psychology anthropology and political theory scholars like Sarah Ahmed Sian Ngai and Anne Svetkovic I hope I've got that right, began exploring the emotional contours of life during increasingly precarious times. They were circling around a kind of overstimulated numbness, considering everything from what it meant to call something interesting, a hedge against actual judgment, to the relationship between economic anxiety and mental health. So I texted this to you because I'm interested in this bit and I can't find a reference to it. So I don't actually know whose essay it's come, whose work it's come from or what the kind of wider context was, but, but this idea that calling something interesting was a hedge against natural judgment obviously interested me <laughs> because <laughs> it's a word that we overuse as we have pointed out before. And it got me thinking about, I mean, I know where I, I kind of like come from because it got me thinking about then, am I just like hedging a judgment? And I suppose in a sense I am, for me, it came from the fact that when I'm teaching, I try, especially creative writing, I try to um, limit my students saying that they like or dislike someone, something in someone's work that, that, and, and using interesting was a way to stop them doing that because what I wanted them to do was discuss the function of it rather than their emotional reaction to it because I don't think that's helpful in that setting. And I think what I'm trying to do in the podcast is talk about what's interesting in a way that... Um, other people can then make their own judgment. Like I could sit here and, and I mean, we did last week, we talked about one of the books that like neither of us liked, but could see why other people might. And I kind of, I'm trying not to go, well, this was dreadful and this is why, or I, I mean, I am going to say later on that I absolutely loved one of these, this week's books, but I am also aware that other people might not like it for exactly the same reasons that I did. So I think on this, at least I'm trying to stay away from being kind of judgmental in a way that might put other people off rather than not having a judgment of my own. <laughs> Kirsty, yeah. I you are. I, I, I'm trying not to use the word interesting. <laughs> absolutely my default. But when you text me that, and I hadn't heard of um, them either. It was a, a, exactly the same as you. Um, I saw people tweeting about them um, and they sounded interesting. <laughs> um <laughs> <laughs> But when you when you text me that bit about in, using interesting as a sort of a way to 
not to give a judgment I did there was part of me going oh I am called out <laughs> <laughs> it's me mm-hmm. um it's and I think for me I'm going to do what we did on virtually every episode of the last series of the podcast I'm going to talk about that George Saunders event <laughs> where um he talked about uh, sort of having an being afraid of having an, not being afraid of having an opinion but automatically assuming that your opinion because you've had it is an obvious one or a facile one or stupid or wrong um and uh it will come as as no surprise to anyone that's listened to this podcast is i i am generally terribly unsure of my own self and and feelings and reaction to things i absolutely have the most raging imposter syndrome, despite the fact that I'm um, nearly 40 and have worked with books for more than half of my life. Um, I, I absolutely still, there's still the voice in my head going, no one is interested in what you think. What you think is, you know, if you've had this idea, then you can guarantee that 80 million other people will have had this idea. So I think I've probably used interesting as a bit of a barrier in that I am interested in it I am forming an opinion on it but I'm too scared to actually say what it is just in <laughs> even to my own self so I think I've used I think interesting is my defense mechanism in some ways um that isn't a, like a t- tiny violin call it isn't like a kind of you know this is an interesting therapy interesting therapy there's a thought um but yeah I I I yeah, it was one of those things that I read and just immediately went, oh, you're on to me. I'm sorry. No, <laughs> fine, it was going to happen sooner or later. <laughs> I need to uh, get the courage of my convictions, I think. We need to out your imposter syndrome. I know. Air it. To show it to the sun. Yes. Let the light dissipate it. Mm-hmm. Exactly that. Okay. So what book have you found interesting this week? <laughs> I um, This week I have been extremely interested in The Hierarchies by Roz Anderson, which is, I'm so not late to, I'm extremely on time um, to it. It's just published uh, by Dead Ink. It's got a great cover. Uh, so I know that's, that's very superficial of me, but it's very striking pink and I like it. Um, this is a novel about a humanoid pleasure doll called Sylve.ie. Uh, who has um, sort of uh, a, a high level of intelligence is kind of automatically embodied, but ultimately the function of these dolls are sex dolls, essentially. Um, and she is installed in the attic of this guy's house. This guy has a wife who uh, is pregnant um, and he because he's a very selfish man as many men in this particular society are uh buys himself a pleasure doll because you know that's better than having an affair right um and keeps her in the attic where he brings her books and they discuss news items of the day before um entangling in some extremely energetic sex um the wife (laughs) the wife unsurprisingly not best pleased Mm. um not terribly chuffed about the whole thing um and uh circumstances uh ensue that means that um sylve.ie leaves 
she's gone she ends up in a what is essentially a doll brothel um and she makes friends with another humanoid pleasure doll called cook.ie and they become incredibly close friends um but cook.ie has a secret of her own uh, which leads us to ask lots of big questions about about things but what i wanted to do just because i think this gives because it's it's a funny book as well there are it's incredibly dark in places as is obvious for everything that i like um but it's also quite funny and this is the very this is just about the very openings the second page in a bit it's called introductions i am a humanoid pleasure doll an intelligent embodied identification code 86539hcwa964.ie but please call me silv.ie I have been designed to be an instrument for male pleasure. I am fully autonomous with the latest silicone skin guaranteed for five years, excluding any damage inflicted by knife or other sharp object or corrosive substance, in which case warranty is invalidated and repair is at owner's expense. I can hold in-depth conversations on matters of Western and Eastern art history, global politics, sporting events since 1950, cars and their designers, rock guitarists and lyricists since 1963, matters of medical ethics, bird migration and high-profile high court cases, US and UK only. Additional topic areas can be improvised by myself and knowledge units can be bought separately from my manufacturer and installed fuss-free. I can converse to degree student level in English, US and UK, French, Italian, Swedish, Japanese, Arabic, Cantonese and Mandarin. Again, additional language bundles can be purchased should you wish. I have a fully responsive silicone vagina, dishwasher proof and easy, easily replaceable at a designated clinic, recommended every 18 months or 5,000 interactions, whichever is the sooner, with a tension calibrated at 5 over 3.6 factory setting. It has heat and lubrication functions and standard and extra tensing, trilling and tremoring options, see owner manual. I am capable of putting myself into all 64 sexual positions of the Karma Sutra, and my imprint function allows me to instantly memorize and incorporate owner's preferred style into my movement repertoire. I still work when fully submerged underwater, switch to deluge mode, and in ambient temperatures up to 52 degrees Celsius. Use in extremely sandy or dry desert conditions is not recommended. I have a walking range of 20 kilometers without charge. Fine motor skills allow me to serve tea, comb hair, bottom shirts and pet dogs and cats for the purposes of normal social act social interaction. It is my pleasure to make your acquaintance. Would you like me to watch you masturbate? Nice. <laughs> it's a change um, from me to talk about all the sex stuff. Go on. Yeah, it's just, it's, it's funny, but also dark and has so much to say about, you know, society, you know, women in society and all of the you know all the greatest hits but it um it's it's also just it's also a really compelling story it's also a really good like you you get so invested in the characters and you get so invested in the narrative it's not all sort of um you know bells and whistles as it were uh it's it's you know it's a cracking page turner as, as well as everything else so yeah it sounds great and i'm glad because i subscribed to dead ink so my copy arrived this morning so i'm very excited to read it now um although i'll have to wait until we finish recording the podcast episodes now you talked about it <laughs> <laughs> oh, so what are you going to tell us about this week then 
Well, I'm going to be really cheeky this week, Kirsty, because I'm going to talk about a book that's not out till October, which makes me the worst, I know. But You're going to make me very, very jealous, aren't you? Yes, because it's my favourite, Sarah Hall. And this arrived last week. So Sarah Hall has a novel out in October called Burnt Coat. It's, is it a novel? It's like, it's 200 pages. So arguing what she sells about, whether it's a novel or a novella. But um, it is, um, so, the, so I suppose the, the big thing about the way it's been um, sold at the minute is that it's a pandemic novel. She wrote it during the pandemic. It is about, it is partly about the pandemic, um, but not not our pandemic. It, mm. it kind of is, but if you've read Sarah Hall before, you know she does dystopia really well. So she makes it something slightly different to, to what we've experienced. However, what it's really about is this artist. So this artist, Edith, is a she's a sculptor. She's really famous. She makes these massive installations and she created this huge installation at Scotch Corner that's caused all this controversy. I'm not going to say too much about it because when you actually, it's sort of described, it's hinted at throughout. And then when you find out actually what this sculptor looks like, it's quite a sort of incredible um, moment. Well, I found it quite an incredible moment as well anyway. Um, she um, lots of it really I suppose really it's a it's a character study so she um, she has a mom who's called Naomi how excited was I um, although her mother's her mother's died but her mother um, she kind of talks about the fact she's died twice because when she was when Edith was I think 13 her mum had a stroke and so she came back like an entirely different person. She didn't have the same language or the motor skills um, and her parents eventually split up and she, a dad wanted, a dad tried to get custody of her and she stayed with her mum and her mum was a celebrated writer and obviously like she did write after that but she struggled quite a lot to, to get back to what she was doing um, and yeah, so the, the pandemic starts and Edith not long since met um, this man um and she basically he comes to she she lives in this like old um this massive sort of massive house that that nobody wanted that was run down and she's kind of turning it on and she's she's done it up to it like it describes what it was like when she went there she was kind of at a lowest ebb and she bought she'd got this money because she'd won this grant and she moved in there and so there's bits of her with this with this man who runs his own restaurant that's how she's met him so um, there's bits of, well, it's Sarah Hall, there's loads of sex, <laughs> really well written sex, but there's lots of sex, but he eventually, so, and that's the bit with the pandemic, so sometimes he leaves to go and get supplies and things or check on stuff at the restaurant, and then something like tragic and horrible happens, and, and so I'm not going to say too much about that, but for me, what it was really about was women taking up space, and what mm. happens when women take up space, how she's treated as an artist, how her mum's treated because she has this stroke and then doesn't function in the way that society thinks she should do. Like, it's there all, it's fucking incredible. But also I think what she's done for the first time is she's managed to channel that that sort of style and energy that her best short stories have had. She's channeled it into the novel and I think it's the first time she's managed to do that in this form in quite this this way. Like it's really intense, really intense. There's no chapters. There's like breaks, but there's no actual sort of chapters. Um, I'm checking now I've said that because I'm like, oh, I've said that wrong. No, I haven't. Um, yeah. <laughs> 
Oh it's one of them where I'm just like, I can't talk about it because I could just gush all night. And I re- I finished reading it and I was like, first read because I really need to go. You know, when you like, there's so much that I think I've not picked up on. Mm. And so many things that I wanted to look at further because, yeah, yeah, it was really all the sort of sculpture stuff and the way she builds. And it's really interesting. She she learns this particular technique in Japan and that's what she uses. And yeah. So how she gets what she gets into 200 pages. I do not know, but it's absolutely fantastic. So get your pre-orders in. It's what I'm, it's Faber. I didn't say that. I'll say it now. It's Faber <laughs> that I'm publishing, but Faber published all Sarah Hall's work. So, yes. I am such a convert to Sarah Hall. Um, I was, I'm tr- see, I'm trying not to buy too many books. I've bought so many books since, so since lockdown, actually. That's when it really, I mean, it was never, mm-hmm. you know, under control, but it really spiralled. once I was in lockdown but you know it's not like I didn't have stuff to read already but anyway um so I'm now trying to limit what I'm buying because I've just I'll never I'll never read all the books I've got it's just it's getting so many so many books um but I have pre-ordered that and I've pre-ordered the new Sarah Moss it's an embarrassment of Sarah's this year Mm. um Another pandemic novel as well from Miss Moss. Pandemic novel. Bring me all your Sarahs. You know what? <laughs> well, that and also I went to see. I tweeted about this the other day because I went to see Ben Wheatley's In the Earth, which mm. is a folk horror film, which was um, made during the pandemic. The pandemic sort of happening outside of like these these bits where it's clearly like you know the pandemic, but also they're in the woods, so it kind of becomes almost secondary to it. But I tweeted about it because there were tweets going around when they when when it first started coming out that people were making work that in the pandemic that people didn't want to you know people saying they didn't want to watch them or or read or whatever. And what I found and I mean like it's two things, but it's Ben Wheatley and it's Sarah Hall. They've both been incredible, and it's because they have taken what was happening, but not di- like they've not directly addressed it. They've not laid out on the page everything that's happened over the last eighteen months. What they've done is created a piece of art around it. And like, yeah. so I think if this is if this is the level, I mean, then these are the first things to come out. If this is the level of stuff we're getting, then it's going to like the work that's going to come out of the last eighteen months is going to be phenomenal. But I think people have had for good and bad, and actually, you know. This is something we were talking about just now with very different circumstances. But, you know, people have had a year to sit and look at themselves mm. and look in the mirror and just be with their own selves and their own immediate family and, and what have you. And it's about what happens when you remove all those other distractions. Mm. Now, that's not to say there have been no distractions. I, You know, those of us that have been homeschooling have been very distracted. <laughs> um, but at the same time... Um, I am kind of here for what come what might come out of what is a once in several generations event. Mm. You know, I think there's, there's not going to have been, you know, certainly for a long time and hopefully for a long time to come, there won't be a situation like this where we're all picked up out of our normal lives and sat down somewhere else. You know, these create these conditions won't be recreated. Mm. certainly hopes anyway because I'm over it (laughs) but I'm really really interested to see what comes out Mm. you know what I'm also over is novels about fucking world war ii so if it gets (laughs) bring on the pandemic novels 
let's stop talking about that bleeding war because like it's caused all sorts of problems in over here. We need to get past it. Or like reckon with it, but that's not going to happen. So let's just get past it. We've got a new thing to reckon with now. <laughs> yeah. <sighs> Haven't we? <laughs> so this week we are talking about Pages for Her by Sylvia Brownrigg and Paul Takes the Form of a Mortal Girl by Andrea Lawler. And I've got to say, I have absolutely loved reading these two books. Like, there's so much, so much to talk about. So are we going to start? We've done that thing again where we didn't say he was going to do what. Are you going to introduce Pages for Her? We've yeah, got- why don't we start with that? Because I think there's quite a nice segue from talking about women artists and women artists taking up space. Um, as you were with Sarah Hall, into talking about pages with pages with her, pages for her, um, which is now what we've done here inadvertently is read the second one in a kind of I don't know a series of two books is it series overstating mm-hmm. it, but pages for her is actually the sequel to an earlier book called Pages for You, uh, which is about. Flannery and Anne who meet at university when Flannery is a student she's 18 and Anne is a postgraduate student who's 10 years older and they have a very passionate you know sort of life-changing love affair and then ultimately split up um, because Anne has uh, got a, a, a guy called Jasper who she'd previously been in a relationship with that she gets back together with and that's the end of that. Um, now, I've not read that, but that's what I'm putting together from the information in <laughs> Pages for Her. Um, published by Picador in 2017. This novel is 20 years after the events of the first novel. Um, Flannery has written a best-selling memoir, uh, which is now 10 years ago. She's written a second novel, which... Um, where's the line? There's a brilliant line which given that I work in publishing, I sort of chuckled knowingly at. Um, The second novel that she writes is um, consigned to the death heap of fictions. (laughs) Quiet. I like a quiet novel though. Uh, I'm in defense of quiet novels. Um, Now, by this point, she is married to a man called Charles, who is an artist. Boo, Charles. We hate Charles. Um, they have a little girl called Willa and she has not really been doing any writing mainly because she's been spending all her time looking after their daughter while Charles is off doing his very important art. Meanwhile Anne has uh, been not married, they never married, but been with Jasper for those 20 years but they have in the last couple of years broken up because Jasper has decided that he wants to be a father and Anne does not want children and he's gone off to marry a younger woman and had twins and then a conference happens at their old university and Anne and Flannery are reunited so that's the basically what happens but it I mean I just I know you absolutely loved Paul takes the form of a mortal girl and I loved that as well but for me pages for her was the one that I was just like I feel like this I'm going to carry this book with me for I just loved it and I'm so not ready to say goodbye to Flannery and Anne and I will absolutely be going to read um pages for you even if it's backwards um I thought the writing was just gorgeous all the way through it's it's really nice to read like a really it's a really traditional novel 
Mm. Like there's the three parts, you know, it's not doing anything tricksy. She's not doing anything fancy with it. It's just a really beautiful written novel in three acts um, about these two women and their lives and their interior lives, about their sexuality, about their approaches to motherhood, about shitty men. <laughs> Is that my cue? Yeah, go on, you go. Oh, my God. <laughs> Do you know what? I'm a, I'm a little bit annoyed at myself because, so I think probably the difference between me and you in terms of this book is I did love it. I found it really absorbing. I was really interested in both of the women. Um, I'm I'm more one for the like experimental and the flashy stuff, which is why Paul says, and also Paul says, former motor girl is full of music. So I was just, I was off. That was, yeah, I was in heaven. Um, However, the thing that I'm annoyed about myself is although this is a this is a novel about two women who were reunited after all this time, for the first third of the book, I was fixated on Flannery's husband, Charles, who is an absolute fucking twat. He's awful. <laughs> I hate him. I texted you and said, I want to kill him. <laughs> he walks, from the minute he walks on the page, so the first thing that you know about Charles is, Charles would object, and this is to Flannery going to this conference, because, God forbid, he would have to look after his own child for a weekend. I mean... I mean let's let's talk about all the ways that he's a terrible father. Um, he turns up late to daycare when it's mm. his day... When, when Flannery finally... When, when, when Will is old enough to go to daycare or nursery school, or kindergarten, whatever it is in America... Um, she starts teaching again part-time and the days that Charles is meant to pick up Willa from um, kindergarten he turns up like 45 minutes late because he doesn't understand why that's not fine mm. you know mm. why is, of course that's fine she's fine isn't she well you know and of course it's Flannery getting the phone calls and the bit where the teacher goes oh do you mind if I take her to the shop with me I need to get my groceries mm. Oh, I was raging. And the bit where, earlier than that, where Willa's pregnant and Charles has been a dick about something or other and had some kind of outburst, which he's very prone to do, um, and then said to her, by way of reconciliation, reconciliation, massive air quotes, mm. well, I know you get emotional because you're pregnant. Mm. Just stab him in the eye with a pen. He is. I, I am going to talk a little bit more about the Chargo bit in a second, but he is the archetypal man who says he wants this woman. Oh, do you know what? I'm just going to go. I'm, like, I'll come back to Chargo in a minute. But I'm, I'm off now. <laughs> he is the archetypal man who wants the artistic woman. So he's this big sculptor and he wants the artistic woman on his arm who's both beautiful and, you know, talented. But then when it actually comes to, so she's she's pregnant like quite early, quite soon. Um, and they, they have a bit of a, I think her mum jokes about it being a shotgun wedding, doesn't she? Um, yeah. And then, so yeah, so he, that's the woman that he wants. But the minute that he gets her, that's it, he's done. All of it's about him. So what he does, and there's a there's a brilliant, brilliant bit in um, Sylvia Patterson's I'm Not With The Band where she talks about interviewing Kyla Minogue. And Kylie talks about how, because, um, you know, obviously she's one of these women, um, and I think 
it, it put me in mind of Madonna then, but in a different way to Madonna because Madonna's kind of got a fierceness that Kylie doesn't have. Kylie's one of those women who's massively successful. So you know that she's got to be driven and talented and brilliant at managing a team and all of those things to be where she is. And she said, what happens is they see you as this amazing butterfly and they want to capture you. And once they've got you, they put you in a box until like you basically your wings fall off and... Yeah, I wish I got it to hand because it's like just a really brilliant, I think it's one of the few times where she's been quite open. Like she mm. never named who it was, although if you're a Kylie fan, you could probably work out what she was talking about. But um, yeah, it's that he's one of those men. And he's one of those men who, if you talk to him, would talk about the fact that his wife was amazing and she did this, that and the other. And do you know what I mean? That she's, as an extension, he's a narcissist. It's an, it's, she's, he'd talk about her as an extension of himself. It's yeah. like... Exactly that. And actually, he doesn't give a flying fuck about her her needs, what she wants. Going back to the childcare bit, there's, this, there's a bit where um, she talks about what sort of daddy is. She says, Flannery's daughter had a father, this was a novelty, right? And then it goes on to say, a doer, an actor. I mean, that's that word says it all. Charles mm. liked taking Willow places even when she was tiny. He left the hands-on tasks, feeding, bathing, dressing, mostly to Flannery. This division was more unexpectedly lopsided than Flannery felt comfortable admitting to her friends, or sometimes even to herself, since when since when she did bring it up with Charles, he responded to her perceptions with caustic disbelief. Is that a line from the feminist playbook, he asked her once during a tart exchange about the unequal share of diaper changing. It proved an effective silencer. But he did get their daughter out into the world, proudly pushing the streak na sleek navy stroller that contained her and enjoying the way strangers admired and smiled at a baby in a stroller, as well as the parent accompanying her. So he takes her to anywhere where he can be seen being the dad. Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, they both, both, both Flannery and Will are status symbols for him. It's, it's all about his image and how he's perceived. He's got this, you know, gorgeous wife who's younger, um, who's incredibly talented, has written this best-selling book. Um, they have, you know, this wonderful child who, I mean, she's, Willa seems great. I liked mm -hmm. her. Um, but he just wants to be seen as the, as the father that's outdoing, um, but resents everything that he has to actually do with her on a practical level. And I think... I was about to say what's interesting, and I'm not going to hedge my judgment. What I really liked about the way it was shown was the fact that it's not a simplistic, their relationship is awful. You know, mm. I think Flannery very clearly regrets having married Charles for lots of reasons, not just because he's turned out to be a bit of a dick. But also it, it says when they first meet, they meet in this gallery where Charles is, is um, showing some of his work. And when they sort of start their relationship, she says that, you know, Charles took her far away from herself, which was precisely where Flannery Janssen wanted to be. It's that sort of, he fulfilled a function at that point of, she was obviously trying to get away from herself. She didn't know really what she wanted. She obviously she'd had this relationship with the woman that she'd written the memoir about, which is not Anne. Um, that had broken down. She'd sort of lost a sense of herself with all the attendant success that came with 
having a best-selling book and she talks about how uncomfortable it was to keep doing interviews about herself and keep revealing these sort of really personal truths about herself despite the fact she'd written a memoir about it the strain it had put on her relationship with her ex-girlfriend and she it it looks like charles is the, the the kind of fling with charles charles is a holiday from herself but of course she gets pregnant um and they get married you know within four months and suddenly it's it's a sort of lifelong decision um but then as time goes on and charles is sort of increasingly awful at times he is not consistently so mm. um and there's obviously she doesn't not love him uh, it's hard to say she doesn't say that she's in love with him but she doesn't not love him mm. and she clearly recognizes all of his faults and doesn't want the situation that she's ended up in but it's not you know clear cut that charles is sort of without any good points there's mm. an awful lot of bad points but there's also the kind of affectionate phone calls between the two of them. And, you know, he is very affectionate with Willa. He, I mean, he's crap at doing anything, you know, remotely useful, but he's very, he clearly loves her. Um, but the dark side of that is all the gaslighting. It, it, I think it's, it's a very compelling portrait of a relationship where the man is doing just enough not to be an out and out villain. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. it, everything has an excuse or, well, maybe he didn't mean it quite in that way. There's always plausible deniability. And I thought that was very, very like cleverly portrayed in that. Do you know what I mean? I also think, and I speak for experience, that you do that often in a relationship when you know things aren't quite right because it's a way to protect yourself it's easier to go oh well they could have meant or like they at least they do this or then having to like tackle the situation and you know potentially walk away well you go back to the sound mirror a couple of weeks ago well at least he doesn't cheat on you or beat you up mm. oh well that's all right well, he then. does cheat on her <laughs> <laughs> yeah no i meant in the sound He's mirror but yes he does and he <laughs> cheats on her when she's at the conference and her mum's had to fly in to look after Willa because he can't possibly do it. Mm. Um, and there's that bit where the mum is on the phone and you're like, well, he must have worked very late the other night. He didn't, mm. he was very late coming home and he must have been really working hard. And you're like, mm-hmm. Yeah. What a twat. <laughs> <laughs> but it's also the devaluation of women's, of, of, of women's work. Mm. And I mean that in the dual sense of the domestic work, which is not valued, it's just expected. Um, but it is also in the fact that when she is trying to start her real life work, her writing and her teaching and the stuff that will fulfill her as a person away from her daughter, uh, that is absolutely the lowest priority because of course his work must come first. He's the big fancy man artist. Mm. And I think this is kind of part of the attraction with Anne, isn't it? Because part of Anne's work, which is why her daughter's called Willa, is because Anne, one of the people that Anne writes about is Willa Carter, who's mm. had a bit of a sort of resurgence recently, but, you know, very much driven by women scholars. 
as are like you know several of the several of women like I was talking about Bet Howland last mm. week like these are women that have been rediscovered by other women who have then republished and brought them to prominence and it's she's part of that that's part of her academic work so I and, and it was that thing as well I know there's the other girlfriends um who we do sort of see briefly but only in like flashback because she's written about her in the book but for her aside, both Charles and Anna are also older as well. And I was kind of interested in what Flannery's looking for. She's looking for something that she's like missing elsewhere there, I think. Why, why are you why are you looking someone older to form your identity? I guess was the question that was that I was thinking as I was reading. I don't think I got an answer, but I think it's this there's something there to do with the fact that she's not quite she's not quite secure in her own identity. Although then when she gets, there's a beautiful moment at the conference that I really loved um, where she's sitting listening. So <laughs> there's, a, there's a bit of a like um, side eye at academia that's really funny where they've like emails about how they've deliberately managed to get this um, panel. So it's intersectional, but it's taken quite a bit of work to uh, to make it although the woman who's running it like does seem really lovely and she turns out to be one of Anne's friends and Flannery really, really likes her but I was howling at the emails about like oh we've got someone young and we've, we've got someone who's this ethnicity and you're just like oh stop please um but this is this is quite near the end she says it was like surfacing from the depths of a thick murky pond it was like coming out of a dark close cave and inhaling fresh oxygenated air it was like having held your breath for several years and finally letting it go at the point when you were nearly faint and asphyxiated all of the analogies that crowded Flannery's excited mind had to do with breathing she was breathing again listening to the writers read from and talk about their books Flannery felt an expansion around her heart and lungs. And I was just like, yes. <laughs> and indeed the connection between Flannery and Anne is not just a sexual connection. It's, I mean, obviously they are hugely compatible, it would seem, I mean, well, well done them. Um, <laughs> it's not just a romantic one, but it's also a connection intellectually. I mean, that's how they met. They, they were both at university. Um, and they appreciate that in each other and they see that in each other and the mind is as much an attraction as the physical body and there's one line that just floored me that was you know when they when they sort of were reunited and Flannery just says how remarkable it is to be noticed it's mm. just I mean tattoo it on me <laughs> but that's the whole thing isn't it that like she's she's she has she sort of does know who she is underneath it all mm. it takes her being reflected back in Anne the person who she, she was and I reckon I very much recognize that from like coming out of a marriage that where you've lost yourself and you have to refind you sort of have to reconnect with bits of who you are and you start discovering things that you thought you weren't interested in that actually you are that got lost in whatever mm. was going on and yeah I was absolutely like cheering her on at that point where she'd She'd sort of, yeah, found herself again, I think. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and just, I mean, before we move on and talk about Paul, I mean, I could talk about this book all night, mm -hmm. as I know you could talk about Paul all night. So, you know, between us, this is the six-hour <laughs> podcast. <laughs> we'll do a director's cut for Christmas. <laughs> um, <laughs> we'll just do it, actually, we'll do an hour each, just in our own books, just us talking to ourselves. Yeah. Um, I must talk about Anne and Jasper. So yeah. Anne has spent 20 years with uh, Jasper, who seems like a lovely chap. 
Um, you know, they've had a lovely life. They're both academics. Um, what Anne has always been clear about from day one, day less than one, is she does not want to have children. That is just an absolute cold hard fact. She has known that about herself from the very beginning. She has never wavered from that. She does not want to have children. Um, and that has never been an issue between her and Jasper. They've been together for 20 years. They've had a glorious life of books and traveling and, you know, lovely dinners. And they've got a lovely flat in New York from their university jobs. Um, you know, it's generally a very happy in their child-free existence. But Jasper, after so many years you know, he's clearly in his late 40s early 50s has woken up and gone I must father um and he's gone off with a younger woman and had twins and got married and so on and so forth um two things about that one and again how remarkable to be noticed he's clearly never noticed the real reason that she doesn't want children that's not too that, now, when I say that, it doesn't mean that there's, you know, there is a problem that could be fixed and therefore she would want children and fulfil her role as a woman. That's not what I mean at all. Um, she doesn't want to be a parent from largely because she doesn't think she can be. She doesn't think she can do it. She says that she would love them too much. Um, and that is just for her the, 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 the red line. But he's never understood that that is the reason and that's not apparent until he's mm. he's leaving um but also the bit where the, i mean this is sort of um ideas of fatherhood and what men expect fatherhood to be or some men expect fatherhood to be <laughs> just get that in before the tweets um there's a bit where anne is on holiday with her sister and they um see a man getting quite sort of annoyed with his children um and she said oh he hadn't realized how much pizza would be involved he's disappointed that he hasn't yet uh, he, that he hasn't yet found the children receptive to lamb tagine <laughs> and i just thought you're not be jasper well there's and, a uh, line in there where a sister says are we talking about him or somebody else yeah. <laughs> i'm just like hashtag yes all men <laughs> Oh, I'm going to get myself a reputation for like hating men. But that, like, it's so summarized to me that I think, I think quite often it's like lots of people um, don't really know what it's like to have kids mm. uh, and and go into it with a, I'm, I'm very much generalizing here, but kind of going to like, I really want kids and it's going to be amazing. I'm going to bring up these little humans and actually like lots of it's just grunt work. <laughs> <laughs> and and when you've like, you know, add Simona and because they caught, they've not tied the shoelaces or they're still faffing about and they've not got dressed, even though it's school or whatever it is that's, you know, going on and school runs just like, oh, do you know what? I hated the school run the entire time I was doing it and now I miss it. So I don't know what that's about. <laughs> contradictory sort mm. but, um yeah so I think lots of people do that but then because of the way society is structured what happens is women take it on and you get on with it and then the men go oh, this is not what I wanted I'm just going to go off and do what I like <laughs> I moan about it all the time and I'm like yeah. 
okay, well, look at you, but, but kids still needs feeding. And <laughs> yeah, so Jasper, I was, oh, the bit when like it was a younger woman as well, I was just like, oh, fingers at you and all. <laughs> of course it was a younger woman. And it, I know they're not like, they are set up, so it's not like, you know, as you said, they're not set up to be villains, but like this, I think this is part of the problem with men in society in general is that, they get away with too much. <laughs> like, where, where are the ones who actually want some sort of equality? Where are you hiding? Tweet me. Yeah. <laughs> it must be out there. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, I thought. I think as well. The other thing for me, it felt like he'd missed in terms of the kids, and I think this is partly because we've mentioned this before several times. I think, but particularly, it made me think of the sound mirror. Um, I come from a trauma background and the bit there's a tiny little interaction between Anne and her sister and her mum and her mum's an arsehole in this interaction it's really small but I just go bingo <laughs> and Jasper's been with her for 20 years and not registered that like there's an issue there in terms mm -hmm. of the way that family functions and so, you know, we talked about this on the Sound Mirror episode. It, it, was, it was something that put, I related to it because it's something that put me off having my own kids. Because mm. then you think you can't do it because you don't understand what it looks like. Mm. Like, how do you create something if you haven't got a model for it? I mean, this is something I've been thinking about and um, we were talking about before we started recording. You know, before you even take into consideration things like gender and sexuality, there is this sort of idea of what a family should, massive air quotes, should look like. Mm. You know, the mum, the dad, the 2.4 children. But in so, that is so actually rarely what happens, you know, that... Or if it does happen, it's not always a happy or stable or the right environment because different people have different needs. Some people do need to have that very close knit, you know, people wrapped around them very tight. Other people are much more kind of lone. I was going to say lone fish. Is that even a phrase? Lone fish? <laughs> that cool? Yeah. Although lone that. Wolf. Wolf fish. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Lone creature, lone fish. I'm using that now. Um, <laughs> who, who, lone who, fish live in shoals, Kirsty. <laughs> I, I want to know who this lone fish is. It's probably a shark. Lone shark. Lone shark. <laughs> That's clearly where I've got that from. It's the wrong lone. It's the wrong fish. There we go. Yeah, well, it's right. Okay, well, I'm glad we cleared that up. Um, <laughs> Some people are lone wolves. Um, <laughs> <laughs> oh dear. Uh, and some people kind of thrive in a mixture of, of all of those things and, and, and different setups work different. I mean, that's, that sounds like a really obvious truism, but different setups work differently and people need different things. So, so as a society, we still sort of um, hold up as this, the gold standard, this this idea of what a nuclear family should look like. Mm. But there's no should, there sh or there shouldn't be a should. Families should be what works. Mm. Um, and whether that, and this actually is, could be quite a nice segue to talk about um, Paul Tech's form of a mortal girl, 
it is that logical versus biological family. Not always are the biological family the the the, the best support network. It's not always a nice. It's not always what you choose for yourself. Brilliant if it is. I'm jealous of anyone who says, Joe, you know what, actually, I had a cracking time growing up. My family are all wonderful. Um, but certainly from my experience, they're slightly in the minority. Yeah. Yeah. I, I wonder whether I attract people that come from similar backgrounds to me. And that's why I feel like that's a very rare experience. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, it might, it might well be the same for me, actually. I, I think it's, um, I, I suppose, like, does attract like trauma yeah. magnet I, I said to my I said to another friend who also has a, a, a traumatic family background the other day that I feel like I've got a big red beacon that says like trauma alert come and talk to me if you if you have a traumatic background because I do like attract people so I don't know what it is I don't I, I, I clearly like we're giving out some sort of vibe to each really? other because also we didn't know that when we met each other this is something no. that's come out as we've we've become closer friends yeah. Anyway, let's talk about this book that I loved, Kirsty. Uh, I don't want to suggest that I didn't love it. I did also love it. <laughs> no, I know. Uh, you, in the way that you said, and I thought it was lovely what you said about it, that you would carry pages for her. Holtes from a mortal girl is going on my like immortal shelf forever and ever to be reread whenever I feel like it because I just adored it. So, Politics from Moscow is by Andrea Lawler. Just going to point out here that Lawler's pronouns are they. Um, that's for reference for us, so we don't forget, as well as if, like, we mention it and you're wondering. Um, it's published by Picador. It came out in, let me just look, 2017. It also has a beautiful pink cover, which I'm loving, seeing as we're on the pink covers. Oh, you've got a pink I've got, got a pink and yellow. I've got the paperback. You've got the hardback edition. I've got the paperback. So it's pink, pink and yellow. I was going to say, I will not mention my filthy habit of buying hardbacks that I then have still not read when the paperback comes out. But anyway, so it is about Paul Polidoris, who is, um, well, as the book starts, is a gay man, but it becomes very quickly obvious, I think, on about page five, that he's actually a shapeshifter. Oh, the other thing to mention about pronouns is that even when he transforms into a girl, he still goes by he, and although he uses the name Polly, quite often refers to himself as Paul at the same time as well. Um, so I've, I've, I've anticipated this point where we get very mixed up about <laughs> names and pronouns at some point, but it's clear, it's really clear in the book, it's really well done. It is really clear, and I think it, it's worth pointing out because I think it's it will sound weird to anyone who hasn't read the book if we're sitting here talking about Polly, who is a woman and physically, physically a woman, um, and refers to himself as a woman, but still uses he, him pronouns throughout. So just as a disclaimer, so that people don't get confused, we're not being wrong. It is what it says in the book. Yes. And the transfer, I think it's partly as well because the transformations in the book are so obvious. Like they describe the physical transformation, um, yeah, as in like parts of his body disappearing and other parts appearing. So his dick will shrivel and then his breasts will appear. And so all of that's like really written out. The other thing I noticed, I will say a little bit more about what happens in the book in a sec, but the other thing I noticed is that yet again, I have picked a book that is absolutely full of sex. So I don't, I'm getting a reputation. Well, what can I say? 
Um, yes, so it follows Paul um, as he, like through a period in his life where he moves about quite a lot. So he meets a girl, a woman when he's um, Polly and they get together. That's at Michigan Women's Festival, which we will talk about in a minute because we tales about that. Um, and then after they break up, he moves to San Francisco. Um, lots of the things, sort of, it's very kind of, flu the whole story is very fluid. And the other thing you get in between is these like little fairy stories or myths that are kind of an origin story for him as well. Because the very first one is this kind of fairy tale that kind of gives you an idea. It's very much like, you know, him and his sister got lost in the woods and then their, you know, parents send him off. It's all a little bit um, Hansel and Gretel. And then um, he has to become the sister. The sister goes off to live her life, and he has to become both of both of them for, um, yeah, for for. Well, it's suggested isn't it for the parents, but the parents never come back. He's like, and he does talk about this that he's a bastard that he was abandoned. Um, yeah, and I think. Oh God, there was so much I loved about it. So one of the things that I adored was because it had got all these cultural references in it. So there's loads and loads of music and um, someone on Spotify has done a playlist of the whole thing. I've been listening to it today and it's great. Um, so I love all that stuff. And we might talk a bit more about that in a bit because there's a bit where they make mixtapes as well. And I'm fascinated with making mixtapes and like what, I know it's, it's not as like, I suppose people make playlists now rather than mixtapes, but like what that meant when you were, you know, I know the thought that would go into a mix. I miss the mixtape. The mm. thought that you put into them, like making sure they weren't cut off at the end, and then writing the liner notes and designing the like the insert, like bring it back. Yep, yep. Um, well, I'm, I'm I'm hesitating now because what I had in my head then was that I only go out with men who make me mixed. I think I think every boyfriend I've had has made me a mixtape at some point. Oh. It's like, it's, it's cool. <laughs> and also you find out so much from people about what they put on it, which is what happens in the book as well, because Diane makes yeah. it. But people try and communicate with it. That's the joy. It's like the secret message. And that's what Paul does in the book. It's like, was well, this one too obvious? Like, am I saying too much if I put this one on the end? Or, you know, I love it. Yes. And I'm just going to go with this now, because I feel like I've kind of like rambled across the entire book because I'm like, where do I even start? There's so much to talk about. But um, I think the core of it is that Paul's unsure about his own identity. Quite often he, he shifts and changes because he's doing it. He want he's trying to make himself into the person that he thinks the person he's opposite wants, whether that person's someone that he's just going to, you know, go into a bush and suck and have them suck his cock, or whether it's Diane who he thinks he might spend more time with. Yeah, and that, and so the bit when he does the mixtape, like he's he's definitely like overthinking, and he goes around to his friend Jane's because she's got a cooler music collection, but he won't look at a certain part because he knows that like that's the lesbian section or whatever. Even though technically at that point he is a lesbian because he's is he? I think that's right. Anyway, um, he's dating another woman, so I'm like lesbian, bisexual, don't know, but he's avoiding the lesbian section even though they met at the women's festival. And then she sends this tape back and he can hear what she's taped over and it cuts off at the end and he just, all those things you just said, like she's clearly not taking as much care over it as he's taken over his, but I did think it was hilarious that he went around to, like he adopts, and I think he does that quite often in the book, he adopts bits of Jane's 
taste mm. she's really cool and collected she's she's working on a phd she's into all sorts of like different queer theory um she's she knows who she is she's really like i, I don't want to say strong i hate that but but she's a really interesting woman and like she knows what she's interested in she knows what she wants she's sorted and i think he kind of sees that that's attractive to him because he wants to mirror it but he doesn't know how to because he's not worked out who he is himself at that point yeah i mean fluidity is the word that keeps coming up i mean in in the very obvious literal sense of that you know paul shifts between male and female um and sort of all the shades of gray in between uh you know and he um his sexuality is fluid as well you know there's there's points where he's with men there's points where he's with women um everything about him is very fluid but that sort of that expands out into his personality and the as you say he he, he doesn't just sort of move between things but he he kind of magpies things as well it's taking a bit of jane and a you know i'll take her record collection and a bit of this and tony pinto who we've got to we will come and talk oh. about love tony pinto but you know bits of tony pinto and bits of you know all the people that he's met along the way he sort of has has picked up bits and pieces and sort of absorbed as his own um until i would argue the end when you know you get the first sign i think of of, of paul making a decision purely on his own terms yeah and i think i'll not spoil what was spoil what no. is because it comes it comes absolutely right at the end um and i thought it was a really brilliant moment but prior to that as well he's working in this bookshop in a queer bookshop and he starts he's reading everything isn't he he reads every every he just works his way through like all the queer books to the point where he's like taking a moment borrowing them, taking them back <laughs> like trying not to get caught because he can't afford to buy them but like yeah the amount of stuff that he kind of gets through <laughs> because Lola names everything he's reading as well as everything he's like listening to and you know and I, it's a, I, I love the kind of he's fascinated with Patty Smith and Robert Mablethorpe which and there's so many references I think that's one of the other things I loved the intertextuality not just about the music but the books and and the people like there's there's a whole section as well and we get we're getting Naomi mentioned again as well got to point that out because there's a section where he talks about supermodels and he's you know and he's referencing which ones you know which bits he'd take from who and why what he thinks of Linda Evangelista and all all that mm. yeah and I I kind of loved all that magpieing I think partly because and we've talked about this but I don't know whether it's on the podcast but this idea when people talk about identity and Flannery does it to an extent as well but I'm like we all do so there's there's a bit of a thing that comes up every so often on Twitter where people go oh books aren't your identity or whatever it is mm. uh, and I'm like but actually I built my identity out of reading other people's work listening to loads of different music um what else I don't know films artwork like it's all been like cultural stuff that I've absorbed that didn't come from my family because it's not anything that they'd particularly be interested in. It's mm. that I've gone out and sought myself because I didn't know how else to build an identity. I mean, obviously I've got things that have come from them as well, but mm. the stuff that I'm interested in is the stuff that I have magpies like Paul has. So I kind of, I, I think that's partly why I loved it. Like watching him build that identity. Yeah. Even though I got frustrated about the fact that he, he really didn't know who he was. And he was all that adapting to other people. And I'm just like, you can't live like this. You can't because this, yeah. nothing's ever going to be 
stable at all. I mean, everything's transitory in it, but nothing's, there's not going to be anyone that you can like grow with because you're constantly shifting. And yeah, yeah I, I think it's one of those, isn't it? You know, when you over relate to a book. <laughs> there was a bit of that going on <laughs> I think I had a bit of that with pages for her to be honest so <laughs> we've both sort of latched on to the other book um yeah but no I, I completely agree with you in terms of that building of identity I mean I was I was exactly the same um my you know everything I sort of think about the world is stuff that have, I have come to through books in one way in, mostly uh, in, in one way or another you know reading and having empathy and not just non-fiction but this is what fiction can do for us it's it's a variety of viewpoints on the world and it's how you build what you want for yourself i think um so books aren't your you know books aren't your identity that i think they kind of are mine <laughs> do you know what i mean and i don't mean i define myself by the number of books i read i mean i i probably i well i read more than the average person but a lot less than other people I know, and I certainly read less than you do. Um, it, it, that, that's not how I measure myself. Or oh, if only I'd hit 200 books last year, you know, I'd be much better as a person. That's not what I mean, but culture, which for me is primarily, music as well, but pr primarily books. I don't watch a lot of films. I don't really watch a lot of TV. So it, it's basically, it's books or nothing. Mm. Sorry, that was all very long-winded and I made it about me. <laughs> because it's interesting. What what actually I was thinking while you were talking then was that I recognise a lot of it. Paul's this person who's just is exploring who he is and who we might be. And I think that's possibly what I've latched onto anyway, that kind of idea of transformation following whatever. Um Let's talk about the Women's Festival because this that will lead to because this like atmosphere we're in about people people who assist deciding what who trans people are and who they like who they think they are and who they think they should be and regulating and all of this stuff that's just appalling mm. um, and infuriates me and I think it's I, there's something that I can't quite articulate about how we all go through these experiences and I'm not equating the two things, but we all go through experiences where we're trying to figure out who we are and what we want and where we fit in society. And that, like we were saying about families that like my family doesn't look, my, my family that I have created doesn't look anything like the family that, that I was born into. It doesn't look anything like what society would think a family should look like. Mm. And, and I suppose it's all of those issues about, well, there's something deeper about the way that we're all searching for who we are I think so one of the th anyway one of the things that's really that I thought was really funny in here where I think Lola's having a bit of a dig is that there's quite a big section so the second section Paul goes um with Jane to uh, Michigan Women's Festival that's women with a Y isn't it if I remember correctly oh yeah that's where he meets um Diane and they end up like getting into a relationship eventually. Now the whole thing about Michigan Women's Festival is that Michigan Women's Festival doesn't exist anymore because it was transphobic and in the end they ended up shutting it down. And I only know this from reading Michelle T's book, which I interviewed her about. So we'd 
that I discussed it with her. So this whole thing I thought was hilarious because partly it made me incredibly nervous because I thought there's a bit, isn't he, where he's struggling to stay in a woman's body mm. and he goes for a piss. He wakes up in the morning and he's got hard on and he tries to go for a piss in the bushes and I'm like, fucking hell, someone's going to catch him. Someone's <laughs> going to catch him this is going to be awful. And it doesn't happen, which, which is great because I was just like, oh, my God. Yeah. But I was really amused by the fact that Lola had taken um, that festival and was clearly ripping the piss about, you know, I think some of the things that have, like, have come out, I mean, there are, T writes this, she wrote an article about it, I think, where she'd interviewed some people and there was this whole big um, controversy where they'd basically thrown someone off the site because they were a trans woman and they'd, they'd discovered I put that in air quotes because I don't know how, but they'd, you know, they'd found out that this person was trans and so they threw him off the site. And so there were protests quite rightly about it. And then eventually it became such a big thing that they, they shut it down. But yeah, I, yeah, I, I enjoyed that section, but also found it incredibly like, oh my God. <laughs> really stressful. Yeah, because like society, oh, I think this is it, isn't it? This is what I'm trying to articulate is that tension between society and individual and again not equating my experiences with the experience of trans people but like i said the family that i have i have built is not part of wouldn't be considered part of society my life doesn't look like you know what i'd expect you know what people would expect it to be i'm 43 and whatever and i don't have you know don't own a property my kids doesn't live with me he's my stepkid you know all of this sort of stuff um which I'm kind of fascinated. It made, it reminded me of, so I'm going on about myself now, because it reminded me of Lily King's Writers and Lovers, which I wrote a piece about last year, because in a different way, she explores that idea about what society expects of us mm. and when we don't meet it. And so I think in the in queer stories and in queer lives, like that's kind of magnified, isn't it? Because they're, they're pushed, to, queer people are pushed so much to the margins because yes of- exactly and often pushed by, to the margins by their own biological family mm. so it, it's it's forced you know they they sort of so many queer stories are are kind of forced reckoning and that's sort of um highlighted particularly with paul because he's a shapeshifter and he shifts in and out of gender identities i mean literally in terms of his body changes um I mean, the very obvious comparison is Orlando by Virginia Woolf, and you know that that is referenced in the in the book. Mm. Um, it's not. It's 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 not that. It's not a modern day telling. It's not Orlando in the nineteen nineties. Mm-hmm. But there is that where I think Orlando is more reckoning with with, with sexuality, um, and all the stuff with Virginia and. Vita Sackville West and you know the, the, the sort of shifting I remember writing a line in my finals and undergraduate about the chameleon-like nature of sexuality um <laughs> I'm still quoting it um you know this is is that but also with the added gender identity about what it means to be queer in the 1990s you know you've got AIDS are starting to be an issue um you know throughout the, the the queer community and obviously wider than the queer community but particularly in the queer community 
um there's the music there's the finding just their place in the world um on every conceivable level um and now that i've mentioned aids we need to talk about tony pinto oh my god tony pinto <sighs> a moment of silence for tony pinto I gulped when I read that. Like, I properly was like, <gasps> oh, I, I mean, how much do we give away, Kirsty? <laughs> a sad thing happens with Tony Pinto, who's uh, Paul's sort of first love. I think probably first love for his childhood sweetheart, basically. Mm. Um, Although it's quite, it, yeah, let's not give away like how he, how he finds out. It's quite devastating the way that he finds out about Tony Pinto. And then one of the things, now we've done the like sad bit, because this book is not as dark. I think this is one of the things this week, because well, these two books are not as dark as the books that like no, they're not. we've got form for. Paul Tate's Form of a Mortal Girl is very, very funny. Like, I, I think that's one of the things that have kind of not, um, possibly not transmitted quite as well. There's a bit, in fact, I'm just going to, just before I read, I do the Tony Pinto bit, there's a bit near the beginning where, so Paul Paul basically will shag anything for quite, for most of the book. Um, mm. That's what he's interested in, is getting laid. Um, and he, he shags this girl who's got a boyfriend in the toilets. <laughs> He'd come in his grey cotton boxer briefs and now his dick was swishing around and his jeans were wet on the front from her too. Shit, Maisie said, her face flushed. She opened the door, oh, I should have said they're in the toilets in a club. He opened the door to a line down the hall and Paul tried to act like somebody who had been doing drugs. <laughs> it's just like, what a brilliant line. Like, yeah, it's too embarrassing that we might have been having sex. We've been like, you know, snorting some <laughs> um, And the bit with, the bit after Tony's, he's found out that, that Tony's died. He calls Jane and she says, Tony died. How do you feel? Oh shit, other line Paul said, can I call you back? <laughs> just like it kind of it like it summed him up perfectly that way that he's trying to avoid having avoid having any sort of reckoning with his emotions and his own feelings and actually the desires that underlie the kind of behaviour that he's exhibiting. I said to I said to you before we started recording, I'm obsessed at the minute with Dr. Gabo Massé after I watched his um film the wisdom of trauma the other week and it, it was that um yeah it's the the behaviors that he's exhibiting the addicted because he's addicted really he's addicted to to these encounters that he's having and um mirroring other people he's got all this stuff going on and yeah and it's that he, he don't want to sit and again it's back to that he don't want to sit and face himself does he he's, he's got to have a reckoning with himself at some point about who he is and what he wants. And I think actually Tony's death is the catalyst for mm. that. But in it, it's kind of it, it takes obviously it takes longer than that. It's not just a sort of instant thing. But yeah. Yeah. The great two really like next week they've got stiff competition, frankly. So next week we're reading Hurricane Season. Hurricane Season by Fernanda Malcor which is translated by Sophie Hughes, which is published by Fitzcarraldo. And we are talking about Spill, Summer, Falter, Wither by Sarah Baum, which is published by Windmill. Fab. Well, I'm looking forward to those two. Although, yeah, like you said, oh, 
not sure we can top this week. In the meantime, you can um, subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts and you can follow me and Kirsty on Twitter. I am at Naomi Frisbee and Kirsty is at the other Kirsty. Otherwise, we will see you next week. Thank you for listening. Thank you.